continuing on in our Philippians series, teaching about sowing to the Spirit and not your own flesh. And we're at this place in Philippians where we want to make sure that this is where the rubber meets the road here. All of these great promises Paul gives us, they now manifest themselves in life rhythms. What we know about Jesus starts shaping what we're doing for Jesus, who we are in Jesus. And so this is a pretty powerful section of the back of the book. Chapters 3 and chapter 4 really drive home, you might almost consider, evidences of the fact that Jesus is alive in you, that he is vibrant in you, and that you are receiving and experiencing the promise of joy that he gives us all throughout the front end of this book. This is what Paul's writing about. And in this particular section, we're discussing this concept of sanctification, which simply means how we grow in our love for following Jesus. That's a very fancy word. It's a very important word because it's the after you come to Jesus, Jesus says, I'm going to spend the rest of my days helping you become more like me. So this this idea of sanctifying, growing into the image of Jesus is as significant as your salvation coming to Jesus. And you might remember if you've been with us from the beginning of this series that Paul places a great amount of emphasis on the front end of this book on working out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is what he's talking about here. He's not saying work, work out your salvation, meaning figure out how to you know, redeem yourself. Jesus has done that for us. But working out your salvation means you're spending your days pressing into the rhythms of who Jesus is and trying to become more like him. And so we're in this section where we're talking about reaping and sowing. That's been the thrust of where we've been. How what we invest into our lives today makes us who we are tomorrow. And today we're going to follow the same train of thought we have throughout the whole book of Philippians. We're going to look at an idea Paul gives us rather quickly, and we're going to continue to marry deeper truths to it. When he, Paul says, stop sowing to your flesh, or stop putting confidence in your flesh, put it in the spirit, that's a very quick sentence he gives us in the third chapter of Philippians. But connected to that is a, is a whole litany of things that help us to understand what he means by that. And so we're looking at these supplemental verses today, Galatians 5, 22 through 25, to help us understand what this actually looks like, what it means to sow to the Spirit. So this verse is, is shamelessly, without question, probably the clearest verse in all of the New Testament that gives us an understanding of what it means to have the fruit of Jesus' Spirit in your life. And it adds another critical layer of truth about what it means to sow to the Spirit, perhaps one of the most important of all. Today, we begin to move from sowing seeds to signs of fruit. So if you're sowing, what should start happening is this fruit we are going to speak about, and the evidence is that we're trying to press into it, we should start seeing some of this in our lives. I'm not speaking about this from an idealistic way, but I'm saying when we talk about love and patience and gentleness and some of the other ideas here, a willing heart to, to follow God, those are signs of the fruit of the Spirit. And today I simply want to use this talk as a bit of a diagnostic to figure out whether or not we actually have this in our lives. In all of these verses that we've talked about, and in particular the one we're looking at today, also written by Paul, this shows us that one of the greatest evidences that a person is sowing to the Spirit in their lives is when they have been filled and are keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. So I want to jump right in and look at this first idea. Very critical. It culminates in verse 25, but I want you to pay attention to the lead up of what Paul says. So one of the clearest marks that you are sowing to the Spirit in your life, this has been the subject of where we've been, is when you begin to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. This is the literal language he uses here. Galatians 5, 22-25. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And he says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. 
you want to know what the ultimate expression of sowing to the Spirit is and putting to death your flesh, it's this right here. Living by the Spirit. Keeping in step with the Spirit. Now, in Scripture, living by the Spirit has a very particular meaning. And our ability to live by the Spirit is truly a, it's, it's the fruition of a promise that Jesus has made us. Remember, you can't live by the Spirit. You can't sow to the Spirit without the power and the authority of the Spirit. You might remember when we were talking through Nehemiah about how to build the kingdom of God in our own lives and in the lives of people around us. I kept coming back to this tagline saying, you can't build the kingdom of God without the king. This is how most of the most significant truths are in the Christian faith. We are commanded to do them, but we will fail, utterly fail, if we try to do them without the power of the God who gives us the authority to actually do these things. And so to live in the Spirit is truly uh, the fruition of a promise that Jesus has already made to us. That's where you start. If you don't start by saying Jesus has given me the ability to be these things, what will happen is, is you'll set a bar in your life that you'll never reach. You'll, if you are the most impatient person on earth right now, when I said that word, you're probably thinking, I cannot be patient. I don't even know how that's going to happen. You have to wipe that from your memory right now. And you have to say, that's already a good sign if you're thinking that. You have to start by saying, I can be patient because Jesus actually said I can be patient. You press into him for the ultimate power. But at the end of the day, you've got to answer some questions about why you are impatient or whatever maybe some of the other evidences of fruit here that are a challenge in your life are. And so he says that he's going to help us be this, to live by his spirit, by saturating our lives with his truth and grace. You don't accomplish this journey alone. And he does this by giving us the eternal presence of his Holy Spirit, whose main job the language I use is a little different from Paul. If you've been here for other teachings we've had on the Holy Spirit, I like to say that the Holy Spirit's main job, if you want to be able to identify where his work is valid and where it might be somewhat invalid, because keep in mind there are some uh, illegitimate expressions of the Holy Spirit today in our current Christian culture. His main job is to point us to Jesus's truth and grace in all areas, areas of life. He is a spotlight on Jesus. Where he is pointing people to Jesus, his work is most likely valid. Where he is distracting people from Jesus, there's a good chance that that might not be the legitimate work of the Holy Spirit. And so Galatians shows us that God's Holy Spirit is truly like a spotlight, always trying to remind us of Jesus's hope and joy in life, while simultaneously burdening us to share that hope and joy with others. That's a key thing here. Remember, when we speak about these, these fruit, this, this fruit this morning, they're not just meant for us. It's not just meant for us. Uh, when we speak of joy, one of the promises of joy is that Jesus will give it to us. And one of the commands connected to that is that we will share it with others. And so all of these things we're talking about, when we speak about how we grow in Jesus, the end game of this is that we have a bend towards mission. It's that we desire to see other people ex experience this in Jesus. And it's through this kind of becoming more like Jesus and helping others become more like Jesus that, that the Holy Spirit puts the spotlight on his son. Or in Paul's words, on God's son. In Paul's words... It's how he helps us to keep in step with the life and teachings of Jesus. And here's why knowing this is important. The simple reality of all that Paul has been saying in this third chapter of Philippians is this. When a person truly desires to bring every area of their life under Christ's lordship, when they strive to be a people committed to pursuing the truth of Jesus and a Christ-honoring church family, when they desire to be equipped for the mission of God, what's happening here is the greatest evidences of the Holy Spirit are in their lives. In short, you could put it this way. Those who claim to follow Jesus should actually want to live in a way where they're actually following Jesus. That is what the fruit of the Spirit is. So think of it like this. In the same way your pulse shows that you're physically alive, the fruit of the Spirit, the way you keep in step with the Spirit is a sign that you are spiritually alive in Jesus. The absence of this fruit could indicate a significant heart deficiency in Jesus. The evidence of it 
could indicate that there's a vibrancy in Jesus. And no matter where you find yourself this morning, you want to be honest enough with yourself to ask whether or not these things are in you, whether or not this, these are sort of the default attitudes of the heart that you migrate towards, or if you have a contrarian understanding of the way you, you deal with stuff. And so anytime we teach on the fruit of the Spirit, I make this point, not because I can't fill up 40 minutes of talking on Sunday morning, but because this point is critical. Uh, when we speak of the word fruit, uh, I've talked to many Christians who talk about fruits of the Spirit. And I want to tell you here that that word is not a plural word in the Greek. We are speaking of the singular fruit of the Spirit. And the reason I emphasize this is because the Spirit in Scripture does a lot of things. And one of the things where we can get kind of fuzzy here is that we speak about spiritual gifting, which is another place I want you guys to think about this year. When we speak about our personal growth areas, I've challenged you in early January to say, do you even know what your growth area is? And if you do know what your growth area is, do you know what your gifting is? Do you, do you know, just I'll say it, that, that God said when you became a believer, his Holy Spirit activated an ability in you that you maybe knew you had. Maybe you were serving in a non-Christian capacity in your life. You were great with administration or hospitality or you're capable to teach or you were hospitable, whatever it was. He has activated something in you to use for the, for the glory of God and the good of your neighbor. Right? He has put a gift in you, at least one. And it's our job to try to figure out what that is and to grow in it. That is where we have to draw a distinction, okay? The gifting God has given us is very diverse. And according to Scripture, He gives to us what God thinks we need. So if you wake up with the gift of teaching, or it turns out over time you're a person who are, you're, you're strong in the other categories I just mentioned, you have to know that for some reason God said you should do this. And He, he saw in you something that He wants to use for His kingdom. A diversity of gifts the Holy Spirit distributes at His will, His pleasure. Super important to know that. Fruits, you might say, right? Multiple things he gives to different people. If we apply that logic, the gift logic, though, to the fruit of the Spirit, we're going to have a problem. A big one. Because we're going to say things like, you know, unlike the diversity, like some teach, uh, some administer, whatever it looks like. If we say, like, well, some people get to be gentle and others get to be patient, but I can be a total jerk in everything I do because that's not my gifting. Then what happens is, is you start having a very, a very coarse understanding of how God wants to work in you. Unlike the diversity of gifts we get, the fruit of the Spirit is something we all get. We're all supposed to be these things, or within reason, obviously, trying to grow into them. Here, fruit means these are marks that are supposed to be present in every believer's life. You don't get to say, well, I probably shouldn't be an administrator because it's not my thing. You, you can say that when it comes to your spiritual gift. You can't say that when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit. The, the contrary should be what we're constantly saying in our mind. We should be saying things like, well, why am I not gentle? Or why do I lack patience? Is there an issue with self-control in my life? These fruit, this fruit, is sort of like many sides to a precious jewel. But they all contain one jewel. And that jewel is the faith that Jesus has placed in you. And so we are, using our sowing seeds analogy, we are to sow meaningful deposits into these things in our life. Patience is something worth working on. Gentleness is something worth working on. Self-control is something worth working on. Goodness and kindness. It's important because these are so substantial. It is important that as we move through this passage, we take just a couple of minutes to identify what each one of these fruits, singular are, you might mean, the sides of the jewel that make up the one jewel. I want to talk about the individual characteristic and connect it to the larger reality of the Holy Spirit saying, these things need to be present in your life if you are in me. And so for this next section, here's what I would like you guys to do. 
uh, meditating or growing or processing your faith is very important. It's actually something that we do very poorly in the Western world. We tend to want to consume information. We're all about like, give me more, give me more, give me more. Oftentimes at the expense of, of really stopping and, and digesting what God has already given us. We are in an information, an IT se sector society today. I've talked about the sociology of this in our past gatherings. And the problem here is that we can tend to just move through these words and then move on from them. But what I want you to do for these next couple of minutes is slowly walk through them with me. I mean, we'll be here till June if I were to preach a sermon on each one of these, right? And maybe that'll come down in the future. But for today, all I want to do is, is ask you guys a couple of critical questions about each one of these evidences of the fruit of the Spirit. And the word will be behind me. So however you, however you process, just slowly walk through these words with me. And in your own mind and heart, answer these questions. Here is what Jesus says, or according to Paul, the, the regurgitation of the fruit of the Spirit should be this in our lives. Here's what should be happening. Love. That's the first thing we read about. So, have you, remember, what you do in Christianity is connected to who you are. So, I'm not just going to start by saying, are you loving people? The question is, have you experienced the extravagant, costly, selfless, and sacrificial love Jesus has shown you on the cross? Have you received it to the point where you desire to love others selflessly and sacrificially in the same way? Does the cross to you say, Jesus loves me? Have you owned that in your heart? And do you show it to others in the same way? Take a minute and think about that. All of you are shaking your head. You're like, yeah, we're good. We love, we love awesome. Joy. You, that was a really lame chuckle. Like, do you love awesomely? <laughs> Joy. Do you find that even in the midst of your most distressing circumstances, you have your ability to find your inner gladness in the goodness and grace of Jesus in the same way Jesus did for you on the cross? Remember, joy is not an external emotion. It can manifest itself that way. But the joy of the cross, which is literally what Jesus says he endured for us, there's nothing happy about that, right? Yet what happens there is he, in an incredibly distressing circumstance, is able to have an inner peace and gladness because he knows that he's honoring his Father in heaven. Is that connection connected in your heart? Or are your current life circumstances wrecking you and robbing you of your inner gladness? Is hopelessness and pessimism driving you? Because if that is the reality, then, then there's a joy issue here. So think for a second. You know, When you think of your life, what does it look like right now? I can't answer that for you, but you can for you. So just take a minute and process that. Joy. somewhat naturally connected to joy. Peace. You have joy in your heart. Peace is likely to follow, right? Now, peace we tend to think of as it's the ability to, to remedy an issue or a conflict between two people. And that truly is what peace is in the scripture, but it has a, a much more substantial theological reality connected to it. Have you experienced the peacemaking love Jesus has given you to be united with his Father in heaven and to the point where you now seek to live in peace with others? Think about this, right? If we are unable to live in harmony with brothers and sisters in Jesus or even those in the world, think about what a cardinal slap in the face it is to Jesus. Because Jesus said, like, let me tell you what actually is irreconcilable. A holy God and a sinful person. But in my grace, I'm able to build a bridge between those two things. I'm able to make peace. That's one of the things Jesus does on the cross for us. He builds the bridge of peace so that a sinful and fallen broken people can know God can know the holy. The unholy can know the holy. And in, and in great grace, the unholy then become holy. 
because God has made it so through his son. And so think about how challenging it is for God to look at our lives when we aren't able to have peace in our hearts or to make it with other people. When, G- when Jesus said, I made peace where it actually couldn't be made. So think about this. Look at the last month of your life and the relationships that matter most to you. Ask yourself, what type of wake do you leave in your path? Is it tranquil waters or, or a raging ocean? Are you a peacemaker? Because Jesus says in the Beatitudes that those who are will be blessed. Is peace present in your life? Are you experiencing it and showing it to others? Patience. Have you experienced the patience that God shows you every day, every minute, to the point where it overflows out of you and onto others? Or, here's the, con- here's the contrarian nature to, to patience, do we get to this place where there's just a constant penalization for people? Uh, you, the paradigm we use in our church a lot is, you can look at your life in one of two ways. You can look at your life as what you'll never be in Jesus, or what you have yet to be in Jesus. One is functioning completely from the flesh, the other is functioning from recognizing God can God could change you in ways you don't even think you can be changed. So in your life, do you constantly penalize yourself for what you're not yet in Christ? Um, Do you constantly penalize others? Or are you at this place where you can see in others, and yourself obviously, where people are not yet, and out of you comes a long-suffering desire to help make a proclaimed truth a reality in a person's life? You know, so when you talk to somebody you love and you're like, man, you've been kind of mean to me. Are, and they say, well, I, I don't know how to not be mean. Are you able to say, well, let's figure this out together and see how we can work through this? Because, as I said last week, proclaiming God's truth to a person is only half the equation. The reality of the way truth is often fleshed out in a person's life is when we are willing to walk with that person to make that truth a reality. That's just as important. And if you want to know where that comes from, all you have to do is look at the disciples. I mean, the truth is, guys, if, is if, this, if Jesus just wanted to proclaim truth, he would have told the disciples a bunch of stuff. And then went to heaven immediately. But he didn't. He, on a daily basis, he's telling them what God is wanting them to become. And then he is fleshing out in gritty ways the reality of helping them become that. And so it's, it's like a twofold idea. Are you, do you recognize the patience God shows you and can you show it to others? Is there a long suffering there? Kindness. Have you experienced the kindness of God in your own life to the point that you have become the kind of person whom God now uses you to be a dispenser of kindness if you read the gospels if you look at the nature of jesus look at the woman at the well great example he shows kindness to people that culture says they'll never be kind to all throughout the gospels jesus is kind to people in these unrivaled ways even to those who are very 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 far from him and what happens over time is he becomes a friend to the broken he becomes a friend to the hurting he becomes a friend to the sinner and in short there's a character trait that develops out of him And people learn to trust him. They learn to feel safe around him. And over time, those people start to pursue him. The woman at the well, as you know, goes back to the village and proclaims, like, I think I just met God. Why? Because something happened in that interchange where he offered a hand of kindness that was never shown to her in any other circle of her life. And that became a rhythm for following. And So kindness is is a key character fruit or characteristic of fruit of the Spirit. And it's worth asking whether or not we, sh- we show it. You might see some of these words here are, they're kind of blurry. Like when I say kindness and goodness, it's, they almost sound like the same thing. And in some ways they are, but in many ways they're not. So goodness is another attribute of the Spirit, another fruit of the Spirit. Have you experienced the goodness of Jesus in your life to the point where you embody it for others? Has the Holy Spirit created you a posture, in you a posture of caring for other people, a posture of generosity with others, a posture of 
you can almost say goodness is sort of the moral way that we live. A posture of the morality that, that reflects the life of Jesus. In short, do your words and deeds bless others like Jesus' words and deeds did? Because he's known for that. He's known for, for being gentle and kind and patient and caring. And his hands and his words oftentimes are the catalyst helping somebody become what they are not yet in him. Goodness. What about faithfulness? This is another fruit. Has Jesus' faithfulness to you compelled you to be faithful to him and those he's put in your life? You know, do you strive to honor God, love your brother and sister and Christ and, and even your neighbor? Think about this. The call to follow Jesus, which Paul references as high, a, a, walk, a, a, a calling that is worthy of walking towards in Ephesians. This is the idea behind faithfulness. The recognition of what it means to be called a son or daughter of Jesus really becomes this, this profound identity that now begins to shape who we are. So do you take the call to follow Jesus as seriously as God does? Is faith a hobby to you, a part of your life, uh, you know, something you get around to? Or is it somewhat, and Lord willing, we're moving towards it actually being the foundation upon which you build your life on? And I'll just go back to the being side of this. Think about how devastating it would be in our own lives if we couldn't say that our God was faithful to us. If, if I said to you at the beginning of this sermon, the reason you can live in, the spirit, in, the, in step with the Spirit is because Jesus promised this to you. If I then had to qualify that statement with 15 minutes of the, the reasons Jesus was shifty, and I started saying things like, most of the time, even though Jesus made this promise, he keeps his promises. But a lot of times he didn't. So I'm pretty sure we're good to go on this one. It would completely rock the way we understand our faith in Jesus and would likely demoralize us. And so to a certain degree, this fidelity is passed into us in the way that we love our neighbor and disciple our brother and sister in Jesus. Think about how devastating it could be if, if faithfulness was not one of the core tenets of who Jesus is to us the effect that would have on our trust in him and the effect it can have on the trust that others have in us. Gentleness. Are you gentle with others in the same way Jesus is gentle to you? Or is anger, outburst, and vehemence the way you desire to handle things in your life? You know, is, is peace, patience, gentleness the response or is the blow up like immediately where you go? Uh, do you often say maybe the right things but the tone isn't proper? Uh, do you lose the platform to say those things because at times you can be rough? I'm not saying there are not times for firmness in life. I'm just saying this is different. The, the, ab the absence of gentleness is hardness and coldness and callousness. And that does not inspire trust and confidence. It actually might, it might build the other kinds of uh, attributes in a person. Fear and pain. Self-control, which if you want my opinion is like the summary point of all this. You can pretty much list all of these things we've just talked about under this one idea. Self-control. And so lastly, is, it, is your life defined by self-control or does it always feel like it's out of control? Now, in my opinion, this phrase is sort of synonymous with the greater theological topic Paul is addressing here. The idea of sanctification. Because a life that is sowing to the Spirit will eventually show evidences of self-control. Because ultimately you've ceded control of your life to the Spirit of Jesus. And there's a blurry line here, I get it. But ultimately self-control in the Christian faith is because the Spirit is in control of your life. And I don't mean in some mindless or robotic way. I mean, you're in constant communion with Him. And because of that, these things are now constantly being brought upon your mind and your heart. Not in a shameful or judgmental way. We'll get to that here in a little bit. Please hear me. When I say these things, I'm not saying like, look at all these things and see what you're not in any of these areas. That's not my point here. The point, though, is that this fruit of the Spirit should be in the top of our heads and in the depths of our hearts. And so I like to say that in Christianity, the self-controlled, idea Paul talks about here is a synonym for a life that is spirit control. 
or using his analogy in Galatians, it's the use of the signs of a life keeping in step with the Holy Spirit of Jesus. It doesn't mean that you do this perfectly at all, at all times, but it realize that you realize there's a capacity when some of these things are out of sorts to be able to rein them in, in the strength of the Spirit. So in summary, our lives, they represent, or they should represent, the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit, it's parsed into these categories. This is all one way of living that Paul very graciously gives us some categories to assess ourselves under. But all these categories are the concrete evidence that God is making us more like Jesus. And when we start to become more like Jesus in everything we say and do, we are going to be sowing to the Spirit. Sowing leads to that. And, and pressing into the fruit likely leads to more sowing. And those things greatly please God. So we should do them, or at least strive to do them. This leads me to the second truth the passage shows us. If we want to be a type of people that are, are in step with the Spirit, and we talked about the, the, the critical steps here a moment ago, then you have to be okay with examination. If you want to keep in step with the Spirit, you have to get comfortable with, with Him examining every area of your life. And to a certain degree, you have to be okay with humble and gentle examination of your own life. You have to be okay with, with inviting God to work in your life in this area. Galatians 2.24 tells us this, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and its desires. And so here again we see this, this sort of tension that the Holy Spirit enables us to do this, but we're also seeing that there's a, there's a crucifixion, if you will, we have to apply to our own lives on a daily basis. We have to know that in the strength of the Spirit, when the Holy Spirit points out, for example, a lack of gentleness, we have to figure out how to take the nails and drive it through that word so that we can move back into gentleness. And so a few weeks ago, we pointed out how the Holy Spirit's main job is to lead us to Jesus' truth in all areas of life. We just talked about several of them a minute ago. We learned he comes alongside us and reminds us. Remember the, uh, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, we talked about this idea of advocacy in the Holy Spirit. That he literally advocates for you in places where you might not be able to advocate for yourself. He's prompting us towards holiness. He helps to keep us from sinning against God and other people, at times even ourselves. And these are all great graces from God. They're evidences of the fact that we don't do this alone. That God has said, I'm going to tell you to do this, but I'm going to help you do this. It's near impossible to see fruit of the, the fruit of the Spirit in your life when you really desire to live in rebellion from God. And this is why the, a rebellion against God. This is why this promise is so important. In one sense, there, this is the, the idea of the, the warring inner man, right? What Paul teaches us about. You've got this place where you are supposed to be these things and you are not these things in some areas of your life. And it's in between those two poles that the Holy Spirit does his greatest work. And the reality is, is unless you're committed to one, you can, kind of, you can kind of like stroll through life hoping it works out. But I think the reality here is that in life for the Christian we should strive to be committed to one or the other. Like, we should pursue Jesus to the best of our ability with all we can, or not pursue him. When we live in the middle, it's almost more challenging, because what starts to happen is you can, you can kind of get wrapped up in your life where you think you are actually pursuing Jesus in places where you, you might not be. And so Martin Luther said this many, 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 many years ago. But the concept of how he tried to talk about this, I would never endorse this, but he said, listen, if you're going to sin, sin boldly. And his idea was like, don't half-heart it. Like, if you're in the world, live for the world. But if you're going to live for Jesus, do your best to live for Jesus. And that's the idea that's being taught here. One man, one inner person, at some point is going to dominate the other. 
The spirit will either dominate the flesh or the flesh will dominate the spirit. And where you throw your seeds is likely going to indicate where that goes. And so in scripture, there are all these descriptions of how the Holy Spirit works to lead us to Jesus' truth. He's like a prism. I've mentioned this one in my own personal rhetoric. Uh, he's one person with many facets, literal definitions of him. He's an encourager, a helper, an advocate. Today, I want to introduce another critical work that he does. And we won't read the verse today. Just you can, I'll reference it so you can look it up on your own if you want. But in John 16, 8, Jesus also tells us the Holy Spirit is essentially like a lawyer. Like he, he works to uh, convict. This is a really bad word. And work with me here for a few minutes on it. This word is not a popular word in our world. He works to convict us of our sin. And at times even our righteousness. You don't get convicted of something unless you're open to hearing. And so this is interesting, right? Because in Paul, uh, in, uh, Paul tells us in Galatians and John, and we see this, this general idea in Philippians, that the way the Holy Spirit is going to help us keep in step with Jesus' spirit is by working in our lives in such a way that he is reminding us, encouraging us in the places where we are living in step and reminding us of the places where we are not in step or convicting us of the reality of our condition before him. And he's convicting us in two critical areas. He's showing people their need for Jesus and the areas of their life that are out of alignment with Jesus, what we call sin. And he's encouraging us in the places where we are in alignment with Jesus. And so uh, the greatest analogy that I like to use here to describe the work of the Spirit is the idea of what a doctor does, right? I've said this a few times here. A doctor cares about your physical health. And because he cares or she cares about your physical health, they sit down with you on a regular basis. I actually just saw mine on Thursday. And we work through, like, take this blood test, do this, do that. My foot hurt last year. How's your foot feeling? Stay off of it. He's like, so you're 40 now. Any heartburn? Maybe you should slow down on the spicy food. He's, he's telling me to do all this stuff, right? And when he speaks to me, I'm not saying, like, what is this guy talking about? Like, I don't trust this guy. I don't even know why I'm here. There's, there's a general understanding that there is there's a benevolence in him, in my case, here, uh, he wants me to be healthy. And so he starts telling me the things that he thinks I'm doing that are not healthy. And then he gives me the corrections to that. And I never leave the doctor's office thinking like, I'm, I'm over that guy. I'm never going to listen to that again. I know the general posture is abundant. That's what he wants for me. He wants an abundant physical life. And the Holy Spirit is like the exact replica of that in the spiritual world. He wants you to live in ways that breed the abundance of Jesus in your life. And so that's why when we say the word convict, we use the word sin. Some of these words here require some, some explanation. The word convict does not mean that God uses shame or guilt to keep you in step with Jesus. In fact, shame and guilt is typically where we start. And God can use that and redeem that. But I'm telling you, shame and guilt is not enough to bring about wholesale change in your life in any of the areas we just talked about. In fact, over time, shame and guilt will just remind you you can never be that. And you'll start sowing to the flesh. You'll start sowing to defeat. And so I suspect some of you are asking, you know, how do I know? It's clear to me when my doctor is trying to tell me something, but how do I know when the Holy Spirit is working like that? Because he doesn't make a Thursday 10 a.m. appointment with you to talk to you about these three critical areas of your life. He works in different ways. And so let's look at a couple of ways that, that uh, the Holy Spirit will kind of examine your life, the ways that he'll speak into your life. There are three main ones we see all throughout the Bible. And the first is one I just touched on. The Holy Spirit is well known. You'll know you're being examined by the Holy Spirit when you start feeling convicted for the sin of unbelief. Now, if you're not a Christian here or are wrestling with Christianity, this might be very much on the top of your heart right now. If you are a Christian, especially if you've been one for a long time, I want, to re I want you to try to do your best to remind yourself of what it felt like to be in this position. 
because it will likely give you a greater empathy for those who are struggling with their faith. Remember, guys, as Christians, the, the more we're in Jesus, the more comfortable we get with what are somewhat sensational ideas. Like, we're going to celebrate in about eight weeks that a guy came back from the dead and saved the world, right? That, to us, is like the foundation. It's the bedrock upon which we live. And then you talk to somebody out in the street, and they're like, dude, dead people don't come back to life. That doesn't happen. I don't even believe in sin. And just look at the world. How can you say there's anything good in it? These are the evidences of unbelief, right? They're sometimes hardened or adversarial positions against God. And so if we want to be able to connect with people, this, this don't, if you're a Christian, don't check out for the next two minutes. Just work through this with me and recognize that this is one of the, the bridging points we have to have with people as the Holy Spirit starts to overturn some of those ideas in their heads and hearts in the same way he did with us. We all had objections to the faith at one point, but at some point God's goodness and kindness to us won us over. And so in our modern culture, when we speak about the sin of unbelief, People have a really misinformed understanding of what sin is. I just kind of in a colloquial way said that great many people don't even believe in it. They think it's ridiculous. Some see it as just like a a thing you do. And I guess I want to say that sin is that. It is certainly, it's a deed or an action. It can manifest itself in that way and a behavior. But it is much, much deeper than that. In the Christian faith, we believe sin is both an attitude of the heart. It's kind of something that is in us and in many ways can define us if we're unchecked. And it's also something that we do. So you don't just, you know, you're not, you don't have a lack of gentleness with somebody just because you want to do it. Something drives that. In the same way that Jesus drives your compulsion to be like him, sin can actually drive you to be things that are things very far from God. Sin is, simply put, it's the compound break, like a straight up break between the beautiful and perfect relationship we once had with God. It was a conduit of goodness that never failed until we walked away from God. It is a condition of the heart that left unchecked will drive our deeds. And so whenever we talk about it, we want to point out that the root of all sin is unbelief. It looks like a bunch of things in people's lives. But at the end of the day, all sin is connected to a a lack of belief in something. It's when we stop believing that God is the only person who can completely satisfy our needs in a particular area of life we're sinning in. The very origin definition of sin in the garden is not eating a piece of fruit. It's a violation of of what God said to not do. He said, listen, you're going to go to that tree and you're going to eat from that tree because you think you're going to get something from that tree that I can't give you. It was a lack of belief. And there goes the fruit. There's the garden, right? They seek in something that is not God, something that they think God can't give them. And the more you sow to that rhythm, the more you will live in ways that are contrary to what God wants to give you. When we stop believing that, we will inevitably turn to things in life that fill those God-shaped voids in our life. I've talked about the idol constructs in here in the past, success. Uh, we, we look to stuff. At times, we might even look to other people. That's, this is the place where this gets the worst, is you then look to other people to be God in your life in ways that they can never, and all you do is break them constantly. The Holy Spirit, listen, when that comes up, whether you are on the front end of knowing Jesus or on the back end of knowing him, the Holy Spirit commits to work in your life and in mine to prove those places where we make mistakes there. He is going to remind us when we start sowing to things that are not God. He's going to point out sowing issues. And in this case, he's going to show out places where we need to believe again. And the way you know this is happening in your life is when these once random things, this is usually how it happens. There's something in your life today that matters to you that did not matter four or five years ago. You know, there are issues of morality or faith or ethics or spirituality or 
gentleness or kindness, whatever, even the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe there are a few of these things in your life that you never really gave two thoughts to. But all of a sudden, you're hearing about Jesus and talking about Jesus and reading about Jesus. And somebody's talking to you about Jesus. And you're like, man, I'm not really a, never really thought about gentleness, but I'm kind of not a gentle person. What does that mean? Well, what that likely means is the Holy Spirit is starting to show you something. Or if, you're from, if you function from the head, it's when the controversial and the abrasive claims of the Christian faith, they get, they get a little less controversial, maybe a little bit more sensible. This is Easter. This is the season of resurrection and redemption. Maybe you get to this place in your life where the weight of failure in your life is heavy. And you start saying, you know what? I don't even necessarily believe in the whole redemption thing, but the idea of it sure would be nice. I'll just look into it for a little bit. And then all of a sudden you start pressing into these ideas of of forgiveness and peace and grace and truth. And these words start lighting up to you in ways they never did before. That is an evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your life. They are the signs that he is examining you in places where there are unbelief. But be warned, the challenge with this, especially if you're still in a position where you might be far from God or you know somebody who's far from God, is when the Holy Spirit starts talking to you like this, he starts unraveling you. This is the hard part of this. He starts taking like these, these, these steel beams that have supported your life and the way you think and act, and he starts slowly pulling the screws out of them. And he says, no, selfishness, that's not a good one. We're going to get that away and we're going to work towards generosity. And all of a sudden it feels like your life starts collapsing because your, your true north, whatever that is, you, you might find that it's different than Jesus' true north. And so when that happens, what I want to say is that is not a sign of God trying to hurt you. It's a sign of God actually trying to show you something. He's trying to bring you back or bring you to him for the first time. This is the mark of a God who loves you. This is the mark of a God who's trying to show you to sow to something different. He wants you to sow to the truth. And so don't fight it. Or maybe that's might even too, too much for you right now. Maybe you just need to say, or I need to say, don't be adversarial towards it. Have an open mind and at least see where it goes. Let the Holy Spirit examine your unbelief, no matter where you find yourself on that spectrum. Here's another important one. Uh, unbelief is probably the more common one we talk about. But the sin of righteousness or self-righteousness is another place where the Holy Spirit will convict you. And this is going to be more likely something that somebody who has been in the Christian faith is likely to suffer with. I'm not trying to be broad and stereotype here. I'm just saying if you've lived in the morality and the righteousness of Jesus for 20, 30, or 40 years, you will probably be more inclined to struggle with this idea than the other one. That doesn't mean that these are mutually exclusive. And so righteousness is a funny word. And we're actually going to have a whole talk on it here in a few weeks because Paul begins to talk about in the back end of chapter 3, righteousness. He's basically saying... Part of the way you you sow to the spirit is by recognizing who your righteousness is in. And this is one of those places where we might say, well, how can righteousness be sinful? Like, doesn't the Bible say you should be righteous? And when you're righteous, that's good. And generally speaking, yes, but righteousness can be as detrimental as as unbelief, because there's this fine line where righteousness becomes self-righteousness. And so while the gospel does tell us to repent of our sin and the Holy Spirit teaches us to do that, perceived righteousness can keep us from Jesus in the same way. And I've said this here before. The problem with righteousness is that it often becomes something that a person uses to manipulate God with. Righteousness, when when it becomes self-righteousness, becomes the type of thing that a person says, well, you should do this, God, because I am this. And that is so fundamentally contradictory to the cross, which says, I will do this for you because you, you are nothing. And nothing means I'm going to make you something in Jesus, right? 
the best example of this, you should read this in its entirety. I am just going to touch on it today. It's the story of the prodigal son. This is a reference we talk about a good bit in here because it surmises the reality of what we're talking about here. When people read the story of the prodigal son, what happens there is there's the older brother who's like really righteous and never messes up. And then there's a younger brother who lives in perpetual sin. We just teach the bottom half of that story. And we think the point of the story is like, don't live like the younger brother. But the point of that story is actually much deeper than that. Both brothers are out of sorts. You've got one who keeps all the rules who's sinning against God and one who can't keep a rule who's sinning against God. Both are hurting the heart of their father. And the unique thing about that story is that while, while one lives in wanton ways and squanders, you might say, the grace of the father, the other feels like because he can live up to, in his own mind, what the father says he should do, he doesn't need the grace of his father anymore. And what happens there is the paradigm, it shifts dramatically. The son becomes the father, and he starts to treat the father as if he is in control of the dynamic. That is the problem. In our world, when we think our righteousness is what makes God love us, we'll start to become the God of the situation. And we'll start to say things like, I'm doing good in life. I've got, you know, I'm treating my family well, or my kids love me, or I'm working hard at work, and I'm not getting promotions, or life is not where I think it should be, or, you know, I've done all the right things in this scenario, but it's all gone wrong. What happens there is you start to take control of things, and the desire to be rewarded for righteousness starts to, it starts to remove the reality and recognition of grace in your life. And this older brother attitude here is what we talk about here. An older brother, just simply put, embraces a very unhealthy form of sowing. He's doing all the right stuff for all the wrong reasons. And the simple statement I like to use here is that this is the person who loves more what God can give them than God himself. And because of that, that person is out of step with the spirit. That person is in step with their own spirit. They are basically saying, I am going to live by my own ways. They never miss that beat. But in doing so, they continue to sow to the flesh and they walk away from their father in heaven. And so if this is an issue you struggle with or you're dealing with somebody who maybe you're discipling who has what we call the elder brother complex. We just sort of addressed the younger brother complex in the first uh, examination point. It's important that you realize you have to step away from self-righteousness and back into Jesus's righteousness. And that's the point of righteousness. I'll give you the 10 cent version of the sermon we'll have on righteousness, but you are righteous because Jesus has made you righteous. That's what it means. Uh, and when you believe that, you have the freedom to live in ways that are righteous without the pressure of thinking you have earned something in life. And that will keep your dynamic healthy with God. And it will keep your spirit sane. So if you are trusting in righteousness today, your own, you've got to be freed from that bondage. And you've got to sow to the spirit. You have to. Because you'll, once that noose is off your neck, it'll be like freedom in ways you've never tasted before. And the last thing I'll say today this will be the subject of what we're going to have for our meditation time, our response time. For the remainder of our time is, is, is this. I want you to give you a very practical, practical diagnostic, some questions you can take home this week to ask whether or not these rhythms are present in your life. And all I want to say here is that if you want to press into the spirit, if you want to be examined by him, then what you have to know is the ultimate goal of what we're teaching today is to stay in his step, to stay in his path, and to recognize where you are in alignment with him and out of alignment. And so I want to give you guys three very simple questions here that you can ask on a very regular basis that will start to surface whether or not you have a, a desire to follow the Spirit. Okay? They serve as a heart diagnostic. Meditate on them here in a couple of minutes, but please take them home this week and live in them, for the, live in them forever. But let this be the point where you start if you've never asked yourself these questions. The first is this. So since the Holy Spirit tells us, Paul's telling us, 
In multiple places, Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John, all of these things that we learn about the Spirit imply he wants to lead us somewhere. So the most obvious question about keeping in step with the Spirit is, is the Holy Spirit a viable influence in your life and how you make decisions? When you think of your life, the decisions you make big and small, have you invited God into that process? Are you asking him for wisdom and clarity and direction in the things you're doing in your life? That is a central part of what it means to follow the Spirit. And the most compelling reason that we should seek God's Spirit like this is because Jesus speaks, uh, seeks the Spirit like this. There are places where he gets away from the masses to be in community with his Father in Heaven and his Spirit. They are communicating with each other. Jesus is resting in the power of the Trinity. He is resting in that authority. And that authority is speaking to him to help him see what to do at times. It's beautiful. He's in the garden talking to his God, to his Father. And we have to be doing the same thing. So if you have a life that is devoid, you're making a ton of decisions, you're doing a ton of things, but at this point you're saying, I don't necessarily even, I don't invite God into my life, or maybe at this point I don't even know how to do that. Wherever you are at, an absence of the Spirit of God in your life with your decisions is an evidence that you might, you might be, I'm not trying to cast judgment here, but you might be out of step with the Spirit. You let Him influence you. The second I would say, and these things are deeply connected, is do you make it a point to get to know the Holy Spirit? And I find for a lot of us, the, the reason we can't answer the first question, or maybe we say, no, he's not really in my life, is because we don't exactly know who he is or what he does. And so it would make perfect sense that we would never let somebody guide us in life that we don't know, that we don't trust, or, that, or maybe we have some really misinformed understandings of him and how he works. And so what I would say here is, if you want to know how to be led by the Spirit, it's very important that you actually pursue truth, the truth of the Spirit, that you spend some time in your life, in your community groups, talking to your leadership here, asking the question, what does it mean to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit? Because remember, he's not an it or a thing. He is a person. That's what Scripture teaches us. And we're invited to know him in the same way we know God the Father and the Holy Spirit. So if there's no place in your life for him at all, if you've been neglecting him because you don't really know who he is, or maybe you are opposed to him leading you because you formulated an unrealistic relationship with him. This is another problem we see in our world today. Sometimes we expect the Spirit to do things in our lives that he's never promised to do in our lives. And so what happens is, is the, the way the Spirit says he's going to work is out of step with the way we think he should work. And obviously you can't, you're not going to follow him at that point. You're not going to listen to him until you get back to truth and recognize who he is. So it's important that you know the Holy Spirit. And the way you know him is by seeing who he is in the Scripture. And I would encourage you to talk to other people who are living in his step. You know, read about the way he works in the Bible and then talk to people who are healthily living in the Spirit. And so no matter where you find yourself this morning, get acquainted with him. Ask yourself, is he working in the world? Is he working in my life? Because he wants to. That's a promise. You, you become the things we talked about at the beginning of this sermon by actually pressing into the power of the Spirit. He'll make you gentle where you cannot be. So don't take this... Uh, challenge without him can't become like jesus without his spirit lastly i would say this uh, when you do let's say you know the spirit uh, let's say you're trying to follow the spirit when you get to that place that the holy spirit attempts to lead you the question is will you follow him and when is a strong word here but i want to use the word when because i think it's the right one if you do the first two things i told you about you're going to find out that the Holy Spirit is going to attempt to lead you. When you say, God, lead me, God's going to do that because that's what God wants to do. 
So you have to ask yourself, when you get to the place, and I'll just go back to the list of fruit, where Jesus says, I think we should work on kindness. What do you say to that? No? Yes, and then do nothing about it? I don't know. I mean, we have to. I know what we should say or what we should be striving to say. But the point here is that following Jesus means uh, it's a bit of a submission to be led. And our hearts have to be predisposed to, even when in doubt, to try to trust the inclination of God. Because he wants to make you something that you could never be apart from him. And there's something really powerful about that. He will likely start challenging you in unrivaled ways. Because you are now genuinely seeking to be obedient to the will and the ways of, of your Father in heaven, of your Lord. And so what I'm saying is, is the more you desire to be in relationship with the Holy Spirit, the more likely you're going to find that he wants to be in relationship with you. The more sensitive you will become to the way he speaks to you. The more in tune you will be to the way God is working out his truth in your life. And promptings can be subtle. You know, they can be just small little things that he puts in your heart, burdens. They can also be pretty significant at times when he starts directing you to sacrifice your life or to be more generous in areas or to do things that are inconvenient or uncomfortable. He works in both ways. No matter what way he's working, though, the question is, will you follow? I'm not here to try to tell you how the Spirit's working in your life. My exhortation to you this morning is just to say, when he starts working, have you already sort of said in your mind right now that I'm going to try to follow him to the best of my ability? So no matter how the Spirit leads, so long as it lines up with the truth of Jesus in Scripture, and a good rudder for that is what we talked about regarding the fruit. You can just use those categories for self-assessment. Look at the way Jesus was them to people. Is them. He is those. Today he is still that to us, right? He's not any less gentle with us or less kind or less loving or less patient. We receive those now in spirit form through him. And we're called to be those now for other people. If you want to follow Jesus, we have to be humble. We have to be teachable. We have to be obedient. But at the end of the day, we have to be okay with following. And so ask yourself as we wrap, when the Spirit leads you, will you follow? Ask yourself, where are you casting seed when it comes to those fruit categories? And what is it Jesus is saying to you in all that we've discussed this morning? What is it you will do about it if he leads you to do something in this very room at this very moment? I pray you will follow him wherever he takes you. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for, uh, for the fruit of the Spirit. Thank you, Father, for... An evidence of who you are. Thank you, Father, for a grace that you show us in our own lives, for a grace that you first lived for us. And I pray, Lord, as we move into this time of quick re of response and meditation, that we would never forget that everything you are asking us to be, you are asking us to be because your son has first been this before us. So let his life and truth and grace be the pace car for how we respond to who you are this morning and the actions you will lead us to as we leave this place. It's in the name of Jesus we pray all of this. Amen.